This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. That can be found in your pew Bible on page 291. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll have noticed a, a powerful change in tone. Solomon's life, which seems to have been going from success to success, all comes crashing down around him. And we're going to look at this section of God's Word in First Kings chapter 11. But first, let's pray together. Father, we're here this morning as a people loved by grace. We don't earn favor. It's a thing that you bless us with, just because you're kind, because you're good, because you love us. Father, we find grace hard to get our heart, hearts and minds around. We find it more natural to operate on a kind of quid pro quo basis. But Lord, that's, that's, that's not the kind of relationship you desire with us. You desire children who know they are loved uh, to walk with one another, make sense of this life together, uh, steady and secure in the fact that you are for us. So even as we come to this challenging text, 
Would you make us aware of your presence with us, your goodness toward us? We ask in the perfect name of Christ. Amen. So there's, there's nothing quite like a dramatic fall from grace. And we see it all the time. In politics, we think of Richard Nixon in sports. We might think of O.J. Simpson. Um, in entertainment, we think of Michael Jackson. Of course, recently in the whole Me Too movement, we think of Harvey Weinstein. Now, we are intrigued by these people, but if we're honest, if the stakes aren't so high, if the issues aren't so severe, we even kind of enjoy a good fall from grace. The whole college tuition scandal, okay, with Felicity Huffman and Laurie Laughlin, there's an unhealthy pleasure, it seems, in, in self-righteous indignation, in being able to point the finger, maybe smile inwardly that people have got what was coming to them. But what if the fall were to be our own? What if it were to be my life? What if it were to be your life? What if it were to be you who blew your life up? Perhaps an affair, perhaps getting caught in a lie, perhaps some kind of unethical business decision. It could be all sorts of things. But what if it were you who suddenly found themselves at rock bottom? We're not so intrigued, we're not so happy at that prospect. Well, today we read about how Solomon blew his life up. He does it in four fairly easy steps. We're going to look at them together. We're going to learn from his mistakes, but then we're going to talk about Jesus and his grace because it's only in Christ. It's only living out his grace that we can live a life without regret. So first though, here's the sermon. Are you ready? Um, how to blow your life up. Four easy steps. Point one, you ready? How to blow your life up. You want to blow your life up? You can do it. Here's how. First, just think that you won't. Step one to blowing your life up, just think that you won't. So Solomon is one of the greatest men who ever lived. He's the man who had it all. He had great wisdom. People came from the ends of the earth to see what he had to say. He had incredible wealth. Everything Solomon touches turns to gold. He also had a, a, a deep life of, of worship. He built the temple. He prayed amazing prayers. And what did he do with all this greatness? He blew his life up. Blew his life up. Chapter 11. He turns from God. He wrecks his family. He loses the kingdom. He faces the judgment of God. He started well, but he does not end well. His life ends in disaster. In disaster. And here's our point. If this can happen to the wisest man of earth, on earth, this can happen to anyone. This can happen to anyone. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, this kind of blow-up can happen to anyone. Now, of course, we celebrate, and we rightly celebrate, the good news of the gospel is that no one is beyond the reach of grace. No one is beyond the reach of grace. If you're here this morning, you've already blown your life up, you're not beyond the reach of grace. Why? Because God loves us as we are. Nothing we could do would make him love us more, and nothing we could do would make him love us less. There's hope for us in the gospel of Christ. But the challenging news for us this morning is that we need to remember that no one is beyond the need of grace either. 
you, you, may be a, you may be a Christian, you may believe that you're not beyond the reach of grace. Well, let's remind ourselves that we never outgrow our need of grace either. You might be growing up in this church. Kids, you understand, just because you grew up in the church does not mean that you will always walk with Jesus. Our students who are just about to graduate and go off to college know that just because you grew up in the church does not mean that you're, you're always going to walk with Jesus. You might be in our church now and have been in our church for, for a long time. That doesn't make you immune from, from blowing your life up. You might be in leadership in the church, and of course, none of us have ever heard of religious leaders who fall. None of us are beyond the need of grace. John Newton said, growth in grace, growing as a Christian, growth in grace primarily means growth in the realization of your need for grace and in your dependence on it. You understand that the more mature you are in Christ, the more you will realize how ill-equipped you are to navigate this life by yourself. And how dependent you are upon the goodness of God and upon His faithfulness to you. We see such an amazing example of this, such a powerful illustration of this in the life of of Paul. Paul, who writes most of our, our, our New Testament, certainly most of our New Testament letters, we see an amazing example of how maturity meant a greater dependence on, on grace. At 1 Corinthians, okay, Paul writes 1 Corinthians around about 56 AD, right? 56 AD, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles. He says, see of all the apostles, I'm the least of them. Why? Because I'm the one who persecuted the church. So grace has started to work in my life, and it's made me realize, yeah, I'm an apostle, but I'm, I'm, the, least of, I'm the least of this impressive group, right? Well, four years later, he writes Ephesians. Do you know what he says in Ephesians? He doesn't say I'm the least of the apostles. He says, I'm the very least of all the saints. So I'm the very least of all the Christians, right? Four years ago, I looked at this kind of group of apostles and realized I was the least important of, the, of, the, of this group. But now, four years later, as I've matured in my faith, I'm looking at all the Christians, all the Christians that are here, not just the kind of elite crack squad of Christians, but all the ordinary day-to-day Christians, and I realize I'm the least of these. Well, guess what? Four years later, he writes to Timothy. Remember what he says in Timothy? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. I'm not just the least of this like special group of apostles, nor am I just the least of a group of Christians. I'm like, I'm the biggest sinner in the entire world, Paul says. As he matured in his faith, as he walked in grace, he didn't see himself getting better and better and better, really making it to the top. He saw himself with, with clarity. I am worse than I realized. I am worse than, I'd, than I had thought before. And I just wonder if we have this kind of humility as we grow in our faith. Are we growing in our awareness of our absolute dependence upon Jesus and his grace toward us? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed unless he fall. If you think you're where it's at, you're in the most danger of all. We want to have the humility to see that failure can happen to us all. Okay. How'd you blow your life up? Step one, just think that you won't. 
Step two, you want to blow your life up? Think that you won't. Then secondly, step two, neglect your heart. Neglect your heart. Let's look at Solomon for a minute. It's easy to get distracted by the kind of sheer scale of his promiscuity, and we'll get to that in a moment. For now, though, I want to note that his downfall began in his heart. This is how sin works. Uh, It operates from the inside out. Operates from the inside out. So the Bible uses the term heart to refer quite holistically to the willing, loving, thinking center of a person. So it's not just like we would use it really to think about like our our emotional life, and that's included in how the Bible uses the term, but the Bible has a a larger scope in view. For the Bible, the term heart is the, the internal core from which the rest of your life flows, right? The internal center of who you are. Well, this term is used Five times. Did you catch it? Five times in just verses two through four. Look down and just scan over those verses just now. Underline each place you see this term, heart. This term is used five times to describe Solomon's descent into folly. Here's the point. Before there's carnage on the outside of your life, there is always quiet rebellion on the inside. Philip Reichen puts it this way. He says, we start falling into sin long before we fall into disgrace. We start falling into sin long before we start falling into disgrace. Because what's on the outside of your life is just a reflection of what's going on on the inside of your life. Do you know your pastors talk about this? Ooh, we, but one of the things, questions we regularly ask, ask each other in our own accountability is, okay, you've not blown your life up, good work. But what's going on that might blow up in five years? What's going on in your heart right now that might take you out then? Are you aware of what's happening in your heart? Are you aware of what's going on in your life? Are you paying attention to what's going on on the inside that will inevitably one day come to the outside? What what about you? Do, Do you know what's going on in your heart? Do you see what your heart is getting attached to? Sometimes it's really simple things, just like comfort. Comfort. Uh, you work hard, but you're cozy at home. You're kind of living on autopilot. You only really have your deal with first world problems. You have become blasé about your walk with the Lord. Maybe it's not comfort. Maybe it's um, fear, fear of man, fear of the opinions of, of others. You fret about your future. You always find yourself worried. Do you see that in your heart? Maybe, like Solomon, it's It's lust, a sly glance at the gym, a flirtatious smile at the office, a hidden life online. What's going on in your heart that nobody else knows about, that hasn't blown your life up, but has the power to take you out? That has the power to take you out. It might be one of those things. It might be something else. Anger, ambition, bitterness. What do you see? Don't neglect your heart because it is the wellspring of your life. And what is on the inside will come to the outside. So, how do you blow your life up? Step one, just think that you won't. Step two, neglect your heart. Now, do you think what's really challenging so far is you haven't even done anything yet, right? It's just, it's just all internal, right? Step three, you ready? Isolate yourself. You want to blow up your life? Think you won't? Neglect your heart? Step three, isolate yourself. Isolate yourself specifically from Christian friendship, from Christian 
community. Let's talk about Solomon's wives and concubines. Verse 1 tells us that Solomon made two mistakes. Do you see the two mistakes that he made in verse 1? First of all, we read that he married many women. Many women. How many? Well, verse 3 said he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's just hard to get your head around. Okay. I'm doing a decidedly mediocre job with one, right? 700, 300. Now, important to note that this was not um, what he ought to have been doing as king. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 addresses the rules and laws for kings, and the, the, the section of God's word explicitly forbid the king from marrying uh, many wives. Specifically says to the king, quote, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. So can we just remind ourselves, just because something is described in the Bible doesn't mean that it's prescribed by the Bible. We read about all kinds of people doing all kinds of stupid stuff in the Word of God. And so don't read this and say, well, you know, man, they allowed polygamy in the Old Testament. No, polygamy happened in the Old Testament, but it ought not to have. It went against God's plan, and it went against God's explicit laws. So mistake number one was marrying, marrying many women. He was not meant to do that. Mistake number two, though, is that he married many, you see it there, foreign women. Now, this actually helps us understand the scale of, of Solomon's promiscuity because many of these marriages were motivated by political purposes. Note how verse 3 tells us that his wives were princesses. What's he doing here? He is entering into alliances for the security of his kingdom. Why? Because the neighboring empire is much less likely to come and attack you if the king's daughter lives in your house. So what's going on here isn't just a kind of base form of lust, but it's actually a kind of self-reliance, a kind of independence from the Lord. The Lord has said, don't do this. I'm your security, right? But here, here he is building up his, his own his own security, his own dependence. Now, I think it's really important for us to note, we pause here and note, that the problem with marrying foreign women, according to the text, is not ethnicity. You just pause there for a second. Um, God is, you know, God made all the nations. He didn't just make our nation, didn't just make the next nation. He made all the nations. And the Bible fully endorses and gives us many, many, many examples of healthy, multi-ethnic marriages. The issue here is not ethnicity. According to the text, the issue is faith. Right, let's look at, look at the text. Let's look at God's own explanation for why Solomon made a mistake in marrying foreign women. You see it there? Verse 2, you shall not enter into marriage with foreign wives. Well, why? Why, God? For surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. The issue here is not ethnicity, it's, it's faith. Don't enter into a relationship with those who don't know me. Why? Because they will turn your hearts from me. And isn't that exactly what happened? Look at verse 3. We read that Solomon clung to these wives in love. He clung to them. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2, 24, when a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, hold fast to his wife. Well, his heart now cleaves to these wives. Verse 4. What happened? They turned away his heart. Lord said, don't do this. It'll turn away your heart. Someone does it, and it turns away his heart. And then, five through eight, leads him into full-blown idolatry. 
as he uses his building powers to build temples for their gods, as he even starts to worship them himself. Now, can we just understand, like, can we just for a moment forget the kind of coexist bumper sticker, right? The gods of these nations, the nations that are listed here, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, were evil, wicked gods. Worshipping them involved the darkest of rituals like human sacrifice, and in the cases of fertility, child sacrifice. So when we read that Solomon worshipped their gods, understand how far he has fallen from worshipping the Lord into perhaps even sacrificing his, his own children. J.D. Greer is a preacher who says on this theme, probably the most single important factor in your life in determining whether you'll make it all the way with Jesus is who you surround yourself with. Back to our point, isolate yourself. Probably the single most important factor in determining whether you are going to make it all the way with Jesus. Are you going to live your life with Christ? Are you going to walk and live a life of faith? Are you going to make it to the end? Or are you going to make shipwreck of your faith? Well, according to this preacher, probably the most important factor in determining that is going to be who you surround yourself with. That's true that this danger of isolating yourself, for us, let's apply this to ourselves today. You know, it is true of, of marriage. It's true of what the issues that are being addressed here. Marriage is the single most important, most influential relationship you're ever going to have in your life, which is why God still commands believers only to marry other believers. It's why God still commands Christians only to marry other Christians. Second Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked. First Corinthians 7, more compellingly, where Paul tells singles to marry only in the Lord. If you want to blow up your life, isolate yourself and isolate yourself in your marriage. Now, you know, as a pastor, I have literally heard all the pushback in the book on this one. Any reason you have, I have heard it. Someone tells me, well, hey, we're just dating. And I say, okay, the problem is you date in order to determine whether you should marry someone. So you absolutely do not need to know that you'll marry them when, when you start dating, okay? Don't put much, so much pressure on dating, all right? But, you know, the, the, it doesn't have to be that high a bar when you begin. But you ought not to date someone that you know you can't marry. Someone says, well, okay, um, I know I'm dating them, but they're interested in faith. That's, that's a classic one. And I say, that's great, and God doesn't call you to sin in order to reach people for him. So break up. See what happens. If they come to faith, revisit it then. Third thing I hear a lot is, well, I know a couple it worked out for, you know? And I say, isn't God ridiculously kind? Isn't he like that? And let me tell you seven times in my life where I have sinned and, and God has blessed me. God is ridiculously kind, but do not knowingly sin and presume upon his grace because God will not be mocked. Now, <laughs> ah, friends, having opened this can of worms, right, I feel there's a few other things I need to say. First of all, if you're not a Christian, see if you're not a Christian and you're here because you're dating someone who is, Right? They probably brought you here this morning. I have made things super awkward. Okay? <laughs> like, 
your brunch plans, I just blew them up, right? <laughs> it's my bad. I take ownership of that. I do want you to know, though, here, here's the thing when you come to this church, if you're not a Christian. Um, I actually respect you enough to not try and spin the truth. Like, the Bible says some things that are really clear. And from this pulpit, what you hear is, is going to be what the Bible says. And so we're not going to try and massage that, nuance that, bait and switch, tell you one thing now, tell you another thing later. We're going to try and tell you the truth. And, and I would plead with you. Here's what I would plead with you to do. Um, figure out your eternal relationship with God before you worry about your earthly relationships with anyone. Because the Bible says there is a God and he does love you. And the implications of knowing him or rejecting him are literally eternal. That he would be pleased to forgive your sin, forgive all your brokenness, forgive all your mess, count you as one of his own, give you eternal life and not just that, but, but joy and purpose here today. And you've got to wrestle with that before you worry about earthly relationships. And so if that's where you are, you're in the right place. I'm really glad that you're here. And, and keep coming, keep talking. Second thing I need to say, having opened this kind of worms, is if you're a Christian and you're already married to someone who isn't a believer, 1 Peter 3 would tell you, stay married and do a really good job of loving your spouse. Be a model of grace and, and pray. And God loves to work in families and may well still use you in order that they might be saved. Don't give up hope. Third, to our singles who are living out this word, who are choosing to be faithful to God even when they've been tempted to marry outside the Lord, I want to say you are a model of faith and you have chosen a compelling path. And this afternoon, read Matthew 19, verse 29, and know that it applies to your life. Read Matthew 19, 29, and know that it applies to your life. You have chosen a path that you will look back on without regret. And you're also in the right place. Let's keep talking. Let's keep walking together. Single most important factor in determining whether you'll make it all the way with Jesus is who you surround yourself with. That's true of marriage as addressed in this text. I think we could also apply it more broadly to, to Christian friendship as well. At Solomon knew and understood this. You know, it's ironic. When you read the Proverbs, knowing what Solomon did with his life, it's like, Solomon, if you'd followed your own counsel. Listen to this. Whoever walks with the wise become wise. Isn't that good? You surround yourself with wise people, you're going to be wiser. But... The companion of fools will suffer harm. You've probably heard the modern-day Proverbs. You know, you, you become the average of your five closest friends, right? Uh, look at your friends and you see your future. These kinds of Proverbs, these kinds of, kinds of ideas. The point is that we are all profoundly shaped by the people we're closest to. That's true in small, insignificant ways. The clothes that you wear, the food that you eat, the music you listen to, the movies that you watch are all greatly impacted by, by those that you surround yourself with. But it's also true of much more significant things, the things you value, the priorities you have in your life, the deep things of your faith. It's imperative for believers not to be isolated either in their marriage or from Christian friends. Now, the good news is, you know, in life, you don't need that many great friends. You really don't. Um, you just need a few. You need a few 
who are really committed to living this life together. If no one really knows you, you're in danger. You're not designed to make it alone. You've heard me say a hundred times, all of us need good friends to walk each other home. That's why, by the way, you know, that's why we're so obsessed with community groups. <laughs> if you're like, oh, stop talking about community groups already. The community groups are not in and of themselves the point. They're just a context in which you can develop these kind of relationships so that we can walk each other home, not blow up our lives, and live with purpose and joy in the gospel. So if you're, if you're thinking, yeah, I'm not sure I do have good Christian friends, this is the place, the place to start. Okay, moving on. How to blow up your life. Think you won't, neglect your heart, isolate yourself in marriage or from friendships. Step four, this is what's going to get you over the line of blowing up your life. You ready? Step four, accumulate compromises. Accumulate compromises. Um, let's do this for time's sake, just by catching the flow of Solomon's life, because I think catching the flow of Solomon's life makes this point of the, the danger of compromise so powerfully. So look with me at verse 3 of chapter 3. Flick back a few pages. Verse 3 of chapter 3, Solomon's story, his uh, sort of uh, story of his, his kingship begins with a statement, verse 3, that Solomon loved the Lord. What a great start. It would have made an even better epitaph. Verse 3, chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord, but soon subtle compromises begin to sneak in. And in these verses in chapter 3, we read that Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. Throughout the rest of the journey, we're going to see him build a, a palace for himself that's completely over the top. We're going to see him put his trust in his own armies. Now we see him marrying many foreign wives and even worshiping other foreign gods. Now, the challenging thing is that at no point does Solomon actually completely turn his back on God. So back to chapter 11, you see verse 4, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God. Verse 6, he did not wholly follow the Lord. So David's life story, if you were here with us a year ago when we did a sermon series in the life of David, it's, it's very up and down. One chapter, he's a total stud. Next chapter, complete disaster. Chapter after that, he's an amazing example of faith. Next chapter, he does something incredibly stupid. Up and down and up and down and up and down, his life story goes. Solomon's story isn't like that. Solomon's story appears to be a steady arc. Things are going really, really, really well. And then suddenly, chapter 11, there's this calamity. But once we've read about the calamity, when we look back, we see that through this rise, there was a thread of sin. Subtle compromises had begun to creep in. And so the progression is there. By the time, look at verse, oh, verse 4 of chapter 11. Senior saints, pay attention. By the time he's old, he's wandered from God. Don't think that blowing your life up is like a, a young person's thing or like a, a midlife crisis. It was by the time Solomon was old that he'd wandered from God. And so, see how the story ends? Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Solomon loved many foreign women. See what's happened from chapter 3 to chapter 11? Chapter 3 starts with, Solomon loved the Lord. By the time we get to chapter 11, it's, Solomon loved many foreign women. This progression has taken place. Understand, he didn't wake up one day and decide to reject God. He just accumulated small compromises until he'd left his first love. That's what Solomon does. He has one hand on God, and he has one hand on the things of this life. And then as time goes by, he, 
this hand begins to slip. And by the end of his story, he's holding on white knuckles to the things of this life. It happens slowly and it happens surely. It asks for us the obvious question, does it not? Just what compromises are we making? What are, what are the small compromises, Christian, that, that you're allowing in your life? Would the Holy Spirit come? Ask the Holy Spirit to come right now and convict you, right? Because he, he knows you. He knows what they are. Ask him to, to show you. What ways are you, are you compromising your faith? Sometimes it's really small things. A friend told me this week that the <laughs> ill discipline of watching just one more episode on Netflix <laughs> has caused them never to get up in time to spend time with the Lord. Right? What beautiful self-awareness. Which of us normally, when we watch too much Netflix, frames this as a spiritual thing? But they have the self-awareness to realize that for them, that's exactly what's happening. Maybe it's with your money. Do you spend all you have out of materialistic urge? Do you save all you get out of a kind of desire to create your own security? Are you not being generous to others, to the Lord? Uh, maybe it's alcohol, having one too many now and then, just ethics being driven not by the Lord, but what's by, by what's acceptable in the world. What, what is it? It could be someone else. What are the small compromises that you are making? Um, one of the Puritans once compared little sins to baby snakes wriggling out of a nest. You can kill them when they're small, but if you let them grow, they'll kill you. And so when it comes to sin, we want to refuse to compromise. What does this look like? It just looks like ask God to show you your sin. Ask God to change your desires so that you have a, a greater hunger for him. When you see your sin, confess quickly, receive grace, pray for strength to live a better life. Bring it to your community. Tell your friends what's going on in your story. Accept their counsel, receive their help. Together we can put sin to death and, and live. Whoever puts sin to death by the Spirit will live. Romans eight thirteen. It's hard to blow your life up. Step one, think you won't. Step two, neglect your heart. Step three, isolate yourself. Step four, accumulate compromises. Okay. We can learn from Solomon's mistakes, and we should, because it is less painful to learn from the mistakes of others than it is to learn from your own mistakes. We can and should learn from Solomon's mistakes, but can we just, again, remember the context that we put this in, that there's a lot more to Christianity than that. Because Solomon's life, the primary point of Solomon's life, isn't really about Solomon himself. Because all the wisdom in the world wasn't sufficient for a sinful heart. So take all, you know, four points, blah, 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 very helpful, do this, do that, do the next thing. None of that is going to be sufficient to save our hearts. Wisdom tells us which path to take, but it doesn't give us the power to actually follow it. That makes sense? You understand that? Wisdom is like a set of directions. I can get on my phone right now and, and, and get directions to anywhere, anywhere in the world that I want. That doesn't mean I have the ability to actually get there. Wisdom is, is limited. And so ultimately, Solomon's story isn't about him, isn't about wisdom. It's about Jesus and his grace. Yes, Solomon blew his life up for his folly, for his disobedience. The kingdom was taken from its hands. But did you see verse 13 and the word of hope? You see it there? I will not tear away all the kingdom 
but I will give one tribe to your son. Very, like, look, I don't know, I'm, I'm out of time. I'm preaching too long. Quickest summary I can give you. Do you know what that one tribe is? Judah. Do you know who comes from that tribe? Jesus. The promise here is not about an earthly tribe and an earthly son. It's about a heavenly tribe and a heavenly son, the greater son who would come, because here's the fact. We have all blown our lives up. Like the, There's a sense in which, <laughs> this is great, I'm preaching too long, and the last 30 minutes are completely irrelevant because we've all already done it. We've all already done it. Now, it may be to one degree or another, but it's not of a different kind, okay? You know, we're all in this category of having blown our lives up. You may have done it one way, I've done it another, we've all done it. And what we need is not wisdom for our minds. We've all blown our lives up for one degree or another. What we need is not more wisdom. What we need is a savior, which is why God gives us Christ. You want to talk about human sacrifice? You want to talk about child sacrifice? You want to talk about a savior who came to cling, not to foreign wives, but to a cross. And because he did that, the savior now clings to each of us. And your ability to make it to the end is not dependent upon your ability to hold on to him. It's dependent upon his ability to hold on to you. In his grip, we're free from sin. We're able to enjoy this life. We don't put our hope in wisdom. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. So follow him. Follow him. Put your trust in him. Live the life of faith because the life of faith is the only way that you'll ever truly be able to live as broken people without regret. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time in your word and thanks for the the joy we get of, of studying it to, together and, and learning, Lord, about your great love for us and how it should impact our lives. And so, Lord, we come first to Jesus Christ because we have blown our lives up and we ask that you would forgive our sins. And only in him, Lord, do, do we ask that you would enable us to, to live out some of the wisdom your Bible does offer us, that we want to be humble, we want to be thoughtful about our hearts, we want to be careful about our relationships, we want to be... Um, careful not to accumulate compromises, all those things. But all those things, Lord, are just implications of, of how we live as people who are dearly loved by you. So cling to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.